Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varley, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and we have another interview for you coming up with a very special guest after a few quick updates. 2022 was a record year, and we have launched into 2023 um, already. We're already in the uh, second quarter here of 2023, and we just want to thank everyone who has continued the great momentum into 23. 2022 was our best year ever, and uh, that has continued with this first quarter of 2023. So thank you to everyone who made it so, so special for us here at Project Purple to allow us to do all the great things we're doing and all the great things we will continue to do. If you're looking to run a half marathon or a marathon, many of our fall major world marathon majors races have uh, have filled up or are soon to be filled up, but we still have many great races from Twin Cities, Detroit, Chicago, half marathons, both in the spring and the fall, still available in many, many more races. Uh, to learn more about our race program and our marathon teams, Feel free to check that out on our website at projectpurple.org. For those locally here in the tri-state area, New England, we have our annual Charity Golf Classic coming up on June 5th. If you're a golfer, we still have foursomes available and and, uh, golfing uh, spots open. If you own a business and you want to be involved from the event from a sponsorship opportunity, we still have a couple of sponsor ship opportunities still available to learn more about the charity golf classic as well as many of our virtual events uh, that we do throughout the year we just got through our purple patties event in march and we have our dino's double two mile event coming up in june check out our website at projectpurple.org and make sure to follow us wherever you are on social to stay up to date on all things project purple Without further ado, let's meet our special guest today. Uh, I'm super excited uh, anytime we bring clinicians on. um, As I mentioned before we hit record here to our guests, the clinicians that when we bring on clinicians, they are on the front lines of this war with pancreatic cancer. And um, anytime we have clinicians on, it, it, it gets me really excited because we get to share kind of some of the latest and greatest of things that are happening in the field and with us today coming to us all the way from Columbia uh, in New York City is Dr. John Chabot, Vice President, Columbia Doctors, Chief Division of GI and Endocrine Surgery, and the Executive Director of the Pancreas Center at Columbia. Welcome to the Project Purple Podcast, Dr. Chabot. Thanks, Dino. So full disclosure, I, I say I say a couple terms a lot. Full disclosure is one of them. Loaded questions is another one that's going to be coming soon. Uh, we met a couple years back. We were just uh, reminiscing here before we hit record. Uh, Project Purple was fortunate to work with a researcher at Columbia on your team, uh, Dr. Ken Olive, who's a who's a researcher in the lab. Uh, we gave him uh, a small grant. I say small. It was a it was a big amount for us at the time, but when we think of research dollars and to the millions, and it was a, it was a hundred fifty thousand dollar grant, which is a lot of money, uh, but small in terms of you know what it takes to really you know put a put a huge dent into uh, into this disease. But we met years ago, and, and we were saying it was kind of like. You know, COVID. Anything before COVID seems so far <laughs> ago, and uh, I'm excited to have you here because you guys, I I would say this uh, outside the podcast, you guys have an amazing team there in the city. We've referred a lot of people. I've referred family friends to you guys throughout the years. We just had uh, a previous guest 
who just came through there. We won't mention his name because of HIPAA, uh, but we, we've had a great relationship with the center there, referring patients and families throughout the New England area, quite frankly, down to you guys. And, and I'm super excited to get you here on the podcast to talk about all the great things you're doing there at Columbia and in the space. So with that, the first segment here for our podcast is really for our guests to give their kind of background. And I'll preface it saying, you know, you can go as far back as you want, or you could say as high level as you want. Uh, with that, the microphone is yours, Dr. Chabot, to share your background with our audience. Well, I'll spare you uh, elementary school. <laughs> but before before we talk about my history, um, just a couple of points that, that come out of your intro. Um, I do think we have uh, put together a spectacular team um, at Columbia that's focused on pancreatic cancer. And, and that goes all the way from our dedicated, focused pancreatic cancer researchers uh, through all of the clinicians, the nurses, the medical assistants, the doctors, and our staff. And, and we talked a little bit about this uh, before going on air. Um, the, I am incredibly proud of our staff in the way they interact with patients. Um, they not only value the patient's time and take care of them efficiently and get things scheduled for them quickly, but they do it with an unbe unbelievable degree of kindness. And that kindness, um, people can really feel the difference. So I am, I am incredibly proud of the team that we've put together across the board. Um, please don't belittle a gift of $150,000 for research. Um, it, yes, it takes millions of dollars to do research, but those millions of dollars are made up of generally much smaller grants and gifts. Um, and we need those desperately. So please, please be, be proud of that um, grant that you gave to Ken Olive. Okay, so you want to talk about me. Um, let's start with um, medical school. Um, I went to medical school at Dartmouth and um, developed my interest in becoming a surgeon that wanted to focus on the pancreas uh, while in medical school. And um, people often ask me, well, well, why would you pick something that difficult? And actually, that's probably the reason, because um, when I was in medical school, uh, the, the, the dictum, the lore was, as a surgeon, you want to stay as far away from the pancreas as you can. Um, you're not going to be able to do much good, and you can definitely do harm. And so, um, you know, why not figure out how to do that better if you're starting at such a low bar? And uh, that's to a great extent, um, I think, what motivated me to start to do what I do today. Um, I moved to Columbia for internship. And um, if anybody's wondering what it's like to move from idyllic Hanover, New Hampshire, to uh, a walk up on 165th Street, uh, it is an abrupt change in one's life. And I had every intention of moving back to someplace more civilized than <laughs> upper Manhattan. <laughs> but uh, I have remained at Columbia ever since internship. And um, to a great extent, the thing that keeps me there 
are the patients and the colleagues that I get to work with. So it took a long time to, to become an accomplished pancreatic surgeon, but I, I worked my way through it. And, um, and ultimately, uh, about 15 years ago, realized that uh, just being a pancreatic surgeon doesn't serve our patients in the way they need to be served. And that's when the concept of the pancreas center um, developed. And to a great extent, I modeled it on the way um, doctors team together to do really complex things like liver transplantation. And um, we put teams together of dedicated specialists. Um, and over, over a long time, we developed real strength at every position. And that allowed us to really take comprehensive care of people through whatever stage of pancreatic cancer um, they were encountering. Um, we had somebody who was really, really good at what they do. And that really serves to um, elevate everybody's game. When you know your colleague down the hall is doing it as well or better than anybody in the world, you're going to elevate your game. Once we built that clinical team and we started to see a lot of patients with pancreatic cancer, we then really built out the research team to have you know, equal strengths um, in caring for patients, as well as um, doing the discovery phase of improving that care for patients. And, and sort of the, the, mod, the mental model um, of the pancreas center is um, see a lot of patients, learn a lot of things, make important observations, collect um, tumor samples and blood samples from those patients, and have a research engine that can um, look at all of that information and, and sort of process ideas quickly so that we can turn it into clinical trials and get it back to the patients quickly. And that's what we're really trying to do is learn as much as we can from every patient and bring as much of our research back to patients as quickly as we can and obviously in a, in a safe way. So that's what we're really all about, you know. It's so uh, I'm so inspired when I hear you say this these things about the center and and, and I, I a couple of questions here as I take notes here. What was that cell like cuz I'm sure you had to go to someone at the cancer center to say, "Hey, this is what I think we should be doing. This is the vision." Now, if 2023, this is a no-brainer, right? Like this is this is where medicine has gone. If they can, and, and one of my questions is like, how do, how do we get more centers to do this, right? And the, and this is something that I've I've really talked with our patient community, you know, about going to centers of excellence and what what do we mean by that, top to bottom, like you said, like having experts at every stop of the way. But if we go back like 15 years ago, th th that wasn't happening. And I mean, you, you know, you'd find a oncologist, you'd find a surgeon, you'd find researchers all scattered amongst the country, right? And very often it was sort of left to the patient to find each of those people um, right. rather than be guided through a system. 
So uh, how did you, like, were the folks at Columbia, like, all for it? Was there ever any pushback? I just would love to know. <laughs> um, it was an evolution rather than a revolution. It was not, you know, I've got this idea and I have to go sell it. Um, it, it really began as just a set of agreements between the, the you know, kind of dominant um, specialties, essentially surgery, uh, gastroenterology, and medical oncology. Um, an agreement, number one, to focus on this disease, and then an agreement that we weren't going to take major decisions on independently. Uh, we were going to talk to each other. And we've had a weekly conference that's gotten longer and longer and longer over the years. But but from that original um, agreement about collaborating in the care of these complex patients, the center grew and we recruited more specialists and we recruited more people to help um, care for the patients. And we recruited um, people who are running clinical trials and eventually um, through guerrilla warfare, because major academic medical centers are built around departments, not around diseases. Mm -hmm. And every department is allocated space, for example. Um, so through a lot of guerrilla warfare and um, persistence and being annoying to people, um, we got all of our uh, doctors co-located into one space. So we share exam rooms with, God forbid, somebody from another department. Um, we share staff. Um, we have uh, you know, the same front desk people. So um, everybody still you know, exists in, you know, in the framework of the university within their own department. Hmm. But everybody's working geographically close to each other. I can walk down the hall. When I'm seeing a patient and say, you know, this patient really needs to see you, uh, Dr. Manji, because she really needs chemotherapy before I can think about operating on her. And he'll say, OK, um, walk her down the hall. Um, so it's been a, a, a long, steady process of evolving this thing to make it better and better. Well, I, I you know, compliment to the persistence, because I, I know that sometimes, um, it's not easy. Right. Uh, but the, the persistence to, to keep pushing for the patients, um, you know, to have that experience. And again, I know I'm preaching the choir as they say here, but you know, for the audience listening at home, this is what, what, when I talk to families and I say, Hey, you have to go find a center that a, that, you know, you align with, but also that, that has this experience. Like you shouldn't be running around campuses. You shouldn't be running around cities to go from your oncologist to your surgeon, to do your testing. And I get it now, like some systems have become so big that it does feel like you're running around the city uh, a bit just because of, you know, real estate uh, and buildings and, and, you know, their MRI machine may not be in the same building as the clinic, right? So th there, there's things like that. I don't mean that, but you know, you shouldn't have to like kind of put this puzzle together. And and that's where, you know, I just commend you and, and respect everything you guys have done is just 
awesome for this community. And it speaks volumes to, you know, what the patients, as we said, you know, have just a, a great experience, patient experience um, with working with you guys at, at Columbia. Um, we, we, we're also fairly flexible, you know, um, and, and what I mean by that is um, the very often patients live at a, at a significant distance or even if it's not far geographically, you know, travel around the New York metropolitan area is challenging. So it's not uncommon for us, for example, to have a patient have a medical oncologist in our center be a consulting oncologist, but get most of their chemotherapy close to home through a local oncologist. And, and that gives them the best of both worlds. Yes, we want them in the center. We want them seen. We want our dedicated pancreatic cancer specialty oncologists to making making the big decisions and dealing with problems if they arise. Um, but that doesn't mean that Every single thing that a patient need needs has to be delivered on our campus. So we try to be flexible in that way for people. And you also mentioned before we hit record about telehealth, right? That you guys are still doing a, a fair amount of telehealth. So for the audience listening, again, to your point, like you don't necessarily have to be in Manhattan to to consult and to work with you guys, they could do it from afar as well. And and you said, what was the percentage again? I think you said about 25% so is still- from, from my practice, it's about 25%. Um, I can't operate through a computer, but we can do, we can do a lot of uh, the other things that we need to do. Um, overall, for Columbia doctors, for our entire faculty, uh, it's still 19% of the, um, the visits are done by telehealth. Uh, it gives us a, a few advantages. If, for example, I'm I'm seeing a follow-up patient and I really just need to see their CAT scan and talk to them about any symptoms that they might be having, um, we can upload their CAT scan. I can see them by telehealth. It's very efficient for the patient. I give them the good news that their CAT scan is clean and they've not wasted hours and hours getting back and forth to the medical center. Uh, the other thing that it, it allows us to do is I can see people and all of us can see people in a more timely fashion. You know, we've got limited days when we're in the clinic seeing patients physically, but I can squeeze in a few telehealth visits in between operations or, or that sort of thing. Um, so it allows us to be uh, more timely in getting patients seen. And as you know, when you're diagnosed with this disease, it seems like time is of the essence and we need to respect that, that um, emotional response. It's awesome to hear that because, you know, I think the, you know, the, the, I always try to look for the positives and, and the pandemic was such a negative for so many reasons. Right. Um, and, you know, I just read something this morning about, you know, the statistics and how people weren't going to clinicians because, you know, they were just scared, right? And so now you were, we're seeing cancers rise, but the fact that we can still, you know, have this mechanism, i.e. telehealth, where we can see people, 
more, you can hopefully see more people throughout the day. People don't have to travel necessarily. Um, it's just so important and, and, and such a positive thing that's come out of that, um, which is awesome to hear that it's still going on. So I hope people are taking advantage of that and will continue to take advantage of that because I think that is here to stay for quite some time. And, and I, think I, it, yeah. I think it's here to stay. And, and, and hopefully the laws around the country will catch up with it because um, there are significant restrictions um, I'm licensed in a number of different states, so I can do it across the tri-state area. And Florida's uh, got a, a rule where if you just register with them, you mm -hmm. can do telehealth visits in Florida. But most states, you have to be licensed. And, and you know, we need those rules to actually catch up with the modern world. Is that an insurance thing, Dr. Chabot, or is that more of a licensing it's thing? It's a state like licensing thing, and, and you're considered to be delivering care in the place where the patient is staring at their computer. It's probably a fee grab for the state, I would imagine. I, I don't mean that in sarcasm, but I got to imagine, I mean... If you're licensed in three states or, you know, how many states, what's the difference in Nevada, for example, right? Yeah, yeah. hopefully, hopefully the politics will catch up with the the need. Yeah, I hope so very soon. Uh, my next series of questions, um, I, I want to, I, I, I say loaded. They're necessarily loaded. They're not easy questions. Uh, they're thought, they're made to be thought provoking. Um, you can relate these to what you guys do in your center, but also as a whole, as a community. Uh, I know you're very well respected around the world for the work you've done at Columbia um, in your experience and your expertise. But what do you feel? The scientific community, I'll use the word scientific community, clinicians, uh, scientists, what do you think we do well in the pancreatic cancer space? You, your colleagues, everyone across the world from like a macro perspective. Um, I think in centers like ours, and, and you know, there are comparable, comparable centers around the country and around the world, um, the patients get great care. But that doesn't equate with um, widespread success. You know, our, our, our definition of success is obviously curing people mm -hmm. um, or um, uh, identifying their disease earlier so that we have a, a better opportunity to cure them. And, you know, though, as everyone knows, cure rates for pancreatic cancer remain very low. Um, when I first started, um, the cure rate was three or 4%. And it was really basically only surgery because we didn't have any chemotherapy that worked for this disease. Um, so we're, we're at around 10% now. So we're you know, two and a half times better, but 10% is still a really dismal number. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think, you know, we, we, know how to take care of people with the techniques and technology that we have far fewer patients are, are suffering bad consequences from pancreatic surgery um, the mortality rate of surgery is much lower we're delivering radiation therapy typically in four or five sessions over two weeks rather than what used to be um, 28 sessions over five and a half weeks um, side effects of radiation therapy are way, way, way down, and we have much more effective chemotherapy. Um, what we don't have 
is um, effective immunotherapy, which has revolutionized care in so many aspects of of cancer. Um, Lots and lots of clinical trials ongoing to try to figure out how to use immunotherapy and what combinations of immunotherapy drugs uh, might work. We've got those trials running and other um, places have trials around the country. And and um, all of us believe that we will unlock that um, box um, and hopefully soon because it's crystal clear when you study pancreatic tumors that the environment surrounding those pancreatic cancer cells is dominated by um, cells and um, structures that inhibit the immune system. There's no question that it's a profoundly immunosuppressive disease. So immunotherapy should work. We just haven't figured out how to make it work at this point. I had a question that just came up and on that note, before we get to the next question, let's just play make-believe. Given your experience, the time you spent in the, in the, in the disease, if tomorrow, if one of the two things happened, which do you think would have a, a bigger impact on positive outcomes of raising life expectancy, a vaccine slash immunotherapy or early detection? Early detection. Um, you know, the, the immunotherapy is in some cancers you know, really, really improving outcomes, mm-hmm. but the profoundly um, bad statistics around pancreatic cancer are primarily about late detection. So if we could come up with a um, blood test or a set of blood tests that could be used to effectively screen the entire population, um, and we screen the entire population for other cancers using various modalities, colonoscopy, mammography, um, PSA, mm-hmm. um, pap smears, um, if we could come up with a, an effective strategy for pancreatic cancer, that would make the biggest difference of all. Yeah. I, I mean, everything, you know, I know the immunotherapy, I know we, the other cancers have had really good success and we haven't seen that yet in pancreatic cancer as from a large degree. But the early detection piece is something I know we've invested in. Um, you know, I, I do feel though, and let me ask you this question. Do you think we've, because over the last five years, we've seen some stuff in like the genetic side that has been really promising. So how can we take like what we've learned from like BRCA patients? Uh, because we know that, you know, certain amount of BRCA, you know, people who have the BRCA gene, they have a, this higher predisposition. Now, not all of them are going to get, you know, pancreatic cancer, but there's a higher percentage. 3%. Um, lin- yeah, Lynch syndrome. Um, you know, we we know that people that have these particular genes, do, do, do you think there's more to learn from that to bring over potentially? I know there's there's cocktails that work very well with BRCA patients, right? The platinum-based drugs that that fare well, which I, on a side note, I just saw something that the plat, oxyplatinum is at a, there's a low uh, supply of oxyplatinum in the United C- States. Cisplatinum. Cisplatinum? Yeah. Yeah. Right. No. Oh my. 
and you know it's it's a generic product at this point um, so um, convincing manufacturers to increase their production is is a real challenge but um, that's a bit aside wow I didn't realize it was a generic product. I, I saw a patient uh, that I'm friends with on social media who has a, a BRCA mutation say that there's a, they're experiencing a shortage. They're getting treatment in the Midwest, so they're trying to make sure that they have enough for the next cycle. Yep. Um, so, you know, we know that about 15% of people who get pancreatic cancer have a either a family history that makes it clear that that family is at risk based on um, either genes we know about or genes we don't know about. And um, we have a dedicated program to investigate those families and to create surveillance programs for potentially affected pancreatic uh, uh, family members. But that's only 15%. Um, 85% don't have any um, inborn gene mutations that uh, put them at risk, and, and they acquire mutations in their pancreas over their lifetime. So what we really need is early detection techniques that apply to 100%. Um, and that's, you know, that's why mammography works. That's why colonoscopy works. We can apply it to the entire population, not just at-risk individuals. Um, but for people who know they have an at-risk mutation in their family and they don't know what to do about it and you live anywhere near us, you can give you guidance about what kind of surveillance you need. And, and, and that is a dedicated program for those families. Yeah. And again, I go back to where we started with, you know, top to bottom. And so, you know, you, you have the care for the patient and then, you know, we know that 15% of these patients that are coming in have these genetic mutations. Well, that means then family members need to get into surveillance and screening because knowing your genes is so important, um, especially if you have a strong family history. And there are some families that have a, a, a very strong history of this disease. And being able to get into surveillance and get into programs. Um, and I always say knowledge is power. So th the more you know, um, I think that gives you kind of the heightened awareness. I know we don't have a diagnostic test, but I tend to think that people know their bodies best. So if they're losing rapid weight, um, you know, if they're having a GI episode or, you know, having pain that they can't uh, really understand, then, you know, they need to go to their doctors and they need to advocate. But if, you, if you're not in these uh, surveillance programs, probably those kinds of things like having, you know, GI issues for two weeks, you, you could probably chalk it up to, I just ate some bad food. Right? Sure. I got food poisoning or something, but that could be something not to say that just because you're having a GI episode for two weeks means you have something going on with your pancreas, but you know, that's potentially a sign that, you know, you should get checked up, um, from your doctor and, and being in a surveillance program is, is critical. Yeah. I regularly, um, see women in their forties and fifties who have known BRCA mutations 
and have you know gone through the painful process of having mastectomies and ha- having their ovaries removed and nobody was following their pancreas. pancreas. They show up in my office now with advanced pancreatic cancer and there's nothing, nothing sadder than that to me. You bring up an interesting point. I know there was a recent study that talked about women, younger women. Um, I think it was someone put it out where they said there was a a study that was done that is showing uh, a higher occurrence in young female, younger females. So are you seeing, my question would be like, are you seeing a lot more younger patients, both males and females coming in? Um. It doesn't feel that way, Dino. Uh, I don't know what the numbers actually are. And, and you know, when you see somebody in their 30s or 40s with pancreatic cancer, it, it hits you um, yeah. and, and you know, leaves a lasting impression. Um, so we might end up sort of magnifying those situations in our own minds. Um, but we are... Um, seeing a lot of people at the other end of the age spectrum, people in their, you know, mid eighties, late eighties, early nineties, um, and, you know, designing treatment programs for them that make sense for them based on any other medical problems they have can be challenging, mm-hmm. but, you know, we, we need to figure out that end of the age spectrum also, because we've got a lot more people at risk in their 80s than we do in their 40s. It's fascinating. My next question here, what are, and this is kind of, a, again, a loaded question, but a little bit broad here. Your experience, what are some things patients and families should ask a clinician when diagnosed? Um, don't be afraid to ask the doctor about their experience. Um and and that doesn't just mean a surgeon. That could be a gastroenterologist who's got to put a stent into your pancreas or into your bile duct. Do you do this all the time? Um, that could be a medical oncologist. Um, the you know, a lot of medical oncologists who who take care of you know every kind of cancer. Um, may have never seen a pancreatic cancer actu- patient actually be cured. And so they approach it with a very different mindset. Um, when you're a dedicated pancreatic cancer person, whether you're an oncologist or a surgeon, you have people, you've taken care of people who've been cured. You know it can happen. You you feel it in your soul that it can happen. And you pursue it more aggressively, just naturally. The things we do can hurt people. And you have to know that upside in the back of your mind because we can hurt people and it feels bad when you hurt people. So um, don't be afraid to ask, you know, do you do this all the time? Um, if you're talking to a surgeon, ask them, you know, how many of these operations do you do every year? And don't be afraid of that question. It's, it's a completely appropriate question. Um, you know, if you had a contractor you would ask them, how many houses have you built? Yeah. No. You know, um, and, and, you know, if, if the person you're talking to takes a front, go somewhere else. Um, it's a perfectly appropriate, logical question to be asking. 
Um, if some, if you are told that your cancer is inoperable, um, don't be afraid to ask the question why. Um, if it's inoperable because the cancer has spread to other organs, then um, nobody should be operating on you. That that you know, don't don't pursue surgery if the cancer has spread. But if you're told it's inoperable because of involvement of structures nearby that um, that there's concern about in terms of doing a safe operation, that's when you really want to find um, a center that does a lot of pancreatic surgery and um, <clears throat> has pursued these kinds of more complex operations than the traditional pancreatic operations. Um, that's when we use a lot of pre-treatment strategies, both chemotherapy and radiation therapy, um, to try to minimize um, the kind of surgery that's required, but also be ready to do what it takes that is safe um, to go ahead and get those more complex tumors out. So those are you know, two of the important things to be thinking about and asking about um, what what's the team's experience. And if you're told that your tumor is inoperable, ask why. I love it. I love it. Uh, on that same note, second opinions, do you think that people should always get a second opinion? Um, most of the time, um, you know, once in a while, people will get to the right place and be very comfortable that they've got solid information. And, you know, they may have family members who have experience there, that sort of thing. Um, but most of the time, I think it's smart uh, to get more than one opinion. It's not smart to get five or six opinions um, because there's going to be something subtly different in those opinions. Um, and, and, you know, people are giving you an opinion. It's not a fact, it's an opinion. So they're going to be subtle differences. And um, if you have five or six different opinions with those subtle differences, it can be very, very challenging to get through the decision-making process. So, you know, two or three, um, I think is sort of the sweet spot. Um, and, you know, make at least one of those a, you know, dedica dedicated center of excellence. Yeah, I, I, you just hit it right on the head. You know, it's not a fact, it's just an opinion. And I think what happens is people, I've seen families like they go through five, six centers, and I don't know if they, they are looking for what the answer may be, but again, they're just opinions, they're not facts. Right, and it becomes almost analysis paralysis, and and some people just fall victim of that. Yep. Um, so such such a powerful statement that you just made. I had a question that just came up, and I have two questions left, and then we're going to share where our audience can learn more about the center. But this just came when you were talking about surgery, and you know about um, you know why someone couldn't do surgery, and, and you know doing treatment to you know shrink the tumor so that it, it does become operable. You've been in this a long time. You've done a lot of, you've done, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you the amount of whipples you've done. 
how come we don't remove the pancreas as a whole or transplant a pancreas? Um, we don't. Re we sometimes do remove the entire pancreas, but rarely do we do it for cancer. The most common situation in which we remove the entire pancreas is for somebody whose entire pancreas is actually precancerous and appears to be getting close to turning in uh, cancer. So there we're doing a preventative operation. Um, the when we've got somebody with an established diagnosis of pancreatic cancer, we want to get that area of the pancreas out. We want to surround, get some surrounding tissue around the tumor out to be sure that there are no little roots that are left behind. We want to get out the lymph nodes that have been draining that area. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't add value to take out a part of the pancreas that's far away. Um, and it adds a lot of the risk side, because if you take the entire pancreas out, you're going to make somebody a bad diabetic. Mm -hmm. And that complicates both their life and it complicates um, the delivery of chemotherapy. So um, with established pancreatic cancers, we try very hard not to take the entire pancreas out. Um, on the other side of that question, um, as we are getting better at curing patients, I used to stop their follow-up at five years after their initial diagnosis and sit, tell them five years mean, is the definition of cure. You are cured of your pancreatic cancer. And what I found is every once in a while, somebody would come back a few years later with a brand new cancer in the rest of their pancreas. So it's not a recurrence of their original cancer. It's that their entire pancreas was at risk for whatever reason they developed the first one. We were lucky enough to cure it. And a few years later, another one pops up. Then I'll remove the rest of the pancreas. Um, then, you know, you just have to accept the, the diabetes. And now I follow patients for life. Um, I, I don't stop their surveillance at five years. Uh, we know every other kind of cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, colon cancer. One of the greatest risk factors is having had a prior cancer in that organ. And those patients all get followed for life. It's just we didn't think about it in pancreatic cancer because there were so few cures. And now it's painfully obvious. So I follow people for life. So powerful. Two questions left here. La uh, second to last one. I give you a blank check. How do we get better at detecting, treating, and providing better outcomes for patients? What, what's kind of, I know that's, that's super loaded, super heavy, but maybe what's like the top three steps that we do? So not $150,000. Put, put, put a, uh, seven more zeros behind that. Um, you know, I think, um, we should be investing a lot in early detection. Um, it's not one of our specialties in our center. We don't have a, a research program looking at that problem. Um, but I, I think that that's, um, that's, going to be the biggest bang for our buck as we as we spoke about early in the program. Um, that said, uh, getting um, the basic science discoveries into clinical trials 
as quickly as we can um, is going to make the incremental advances that we need until we get that early detection um, program. Um, so uh, really funding some of the early, what are phase one and phase two clinical trials to get those ideas that we've learned in, in mice in the lab um, to validate or invalidate in people. Um, I think that's, that's where I would invest um, a lot of the money. We're getting there. We're getting there. I, we're going to keep pushing. I, I promise that. Uh, last I, question. I here. agree with you. Uh, my last question here, and this is probably the hardest one uh, and always the, the most loaded one, if that's even a saying here on the Project Purple podcast, but in your experience, how do you define pancreatic cancer? What's your definition for yourself? Um, it's um, the uh, development of pancreatic cells' um, ability to invade into spaces they don't belong and multiply um, without control. So that really encompasses two things. It means growing a mass, but it also means that invasion process, the ability to spread. And, uh, and in general, that's what people die from is the spread of pancreatic cancer and that's all about the early detection thing because more than half of people, when they're diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, it has already spread to other organs. It's awesome. Awesome answer. Dr. Chabot, someone listening wants to learn how they can get involved at Columbia, either from a patient, learn about clinical trials, the research, uh, you know, do a telehealth uh, appointment with you or someone on the team maybe recently diagnosed, doesn't live in the New York City area, what's the best, where is the best place, I should say, for them to kind of learn more about the program, learn about the great work you're doing there? Two ways. Um, go to our website. Um, it's it's um, filled with both our results as well as you know information from all over the world about pancreatic cancer. Um, or call 212-305-9467 and talk to Maritza, and Maritza it will guide you through the process in terms of you know, how to make an appointment, who you should be seeing. Um, she is our new patient coordinator. Um, so she um, helps all of the new patients get through the process to be seen, and she'll give you any information that you need to help you make decisions. I love it. And even if you type in Columbia Pancreas Center, it comes right up. Um, there's a whole page with everyone's information on there and all the, all the information. Dr. Chabot, um, it's really been an honor to have you here on the podcast. Thank you for all you're doing in the medical space, treating patients, um, providing better outcomes. Um, as I said, we're going to keep pushing and keep raising dollars to provide support for you guys. And it's just so inspiring to have you on really from the front lines and hearing all the great things that you guys are not only doing at Columbia, but really become, because this kind of spreads, right? What you guys do there spreads to other centers throughout the world, not just the country. Absolutely. Especially um, the research, you know, or we discover a new way to do something and then we try to get that out in the world. Well, 
thank you for me personally for being in the pancreas field when you made that decision to to be a pancreatic cancer surgeon, all the lives that you've touched in a positive way throughout your career. Um, we're going to keep pushing for funding and for dollars and for more research and more awareness. So pleasure has been mine to have you here on the podcast. Dino, thank you for having me and thank you for what you do uh, because um, much of what we do is dependent on both you getting the word out and you raising the dollars to help us do the research. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for doing what you do. Thank you. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. If you like what you hear today or what you saw on YouTube, feel free to share this episode. Follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on YouTube. Until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. Mm -hmm.